fascinated by language acquisition. Um, one of the joys of learning a foreign language as an adult is you get to talk like a child again. Um, and so, you know, you, I learn my five or six Portuguese words and my teacher sends me out to practice and I'm trying to interact with people. And I don't, maybe you've heard the stereotype, if someone's speaking to you and, and you're trying to communicate with them, they don't understand, you just tend to get louder. And as if getting louder helps. And so I, re I remember being in shouting matches in the grocery store where the lady behind the cash register would say something to me and I would say in you know, my broken Portuguese, I'm sorry, I don't know that word. And so she'd say it louder. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't know that word. And she'd say it louder. And I'd, I don't know that word. Use another word. But you know, when we met Efeson and Baruch, they were four and two. And Efeson had studied some English. And so Efeson could say some things, like he could count to 30 but he always skipped 27. We don't know why, but one, two, three, four, five, all the way up, but skipping 27 to 30. And if you said, hey, Efeson, how are you? He would say, I'm fine, thank you, and you? Because that's the response. He doesn't know what those words mean, but he's learned those are the appropriate response. So let's play a language acquisition game. If I say the word student, that's going to conjure a mental picture in your mind. Student. So what are you thinking? Probably, if I say the word student, we think classroom, we think, you know, talking head up front. I'm in campus ministry at Boston University, so I have a, you know, drunken parties maybe, but sometimes. But what do you think of when you think of student? So, no, yeah, you're good. All right. Sorry, we're, we're, we're learning some new things today. All right. So I'm going to break the rules. First day of Greek class, my professor told me, do not use Greek words when you preach. It's probably irrelevant. It makes you sound arrogant, and nobody cares. But here I am. This Greek word is mathetes. And the reason why I wanted to put that before you is because it means student. But the problem is, that word picture that that creates for us to say student isn't really what's behind this concept. And so, like with a lot of words we find in the Bible, if there's not some sort of direct correlation to what we want it to say, we just take the letters from either Greek or Latin and we copy them over and we make a new word. And that's where we get such delights as propitiation, which nobody knows what it means. But we just took the Latin word and we copied over some letters and we came up with a new one. Or sanctification, or baptism, or in this case, we translate this as disciple. But disciple means student. Just not the kind of student you're thinking, right? So we have to think about what was education like at the time of Jesus to understand what this means. Because, you know, spoiler alert... If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you are necessarily saying that you are a student, right? We're talking about learning new things. Following Jesus is learning new things. So what are we learning? Well, it's more than knowledge. It's more than, you know, talking head at the front of the classroom, download facts into my brain so that I can check the right answers on the final exam. But it's about character formation. Jesus... Disciples were with him 24-7, so they learned through observation of what he was doing, and then they went on field trips. And Jesus sends them out two by two, and he says, okay, go practice this. That's what they were learning. 
Who's the teacher? Well, the teacher is Jesus. They called him rabbi, which means teacher. Uh, but teacher also uh, carried more authority in Jesus' day. Um, the teacher could demand anything of his students. You know, they're with him 24-7. And if teacher says, I want a cup of water, grab a cup of water. I used to play with my students in Angola when I was the teacher. I'd say, you know, a student who was falling asleep in class, I want you to stand up and I want you to make noises like a chicken. And they would do it because I have this uh, authority vested in me by my role as teacher. And I really had to be careful not to let that go to my head. But that's the kind of authority that we give our teacher if we are a disciple of the one whom we're following. And what's the ultimate goal then of this class? How do we know when, we've, how do we know when we're finished? How do we know when we've graduated? It's because we have become like our teacher. The ultimate goal of following Christ is transformation. We just sang, make me like Jesus. Make me like the teacher. That's the goal. So think of Peter. I have a picture of Peter that Brooke's going to throw up on the screen for us. Think of Peter's story in the New Testament. This is not the real Peter. This is an actor's portrayal of Peter. Sorry. <laughs> So Peter was Jesus' first disciple that recognized that he is the Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is Lord. But as soon as Jesus is on the cross, Peter is also the first one to deny him and run away. After the resurrection, Peter is the one who in boldness goes before the Jewish leaders and preaches the gospel. And it's Peter that gets called on to share the gospel with Cornelius, who becomes the first Roman to come to faith in Christ. But then it's also Peter who won't eat with the Romans and the Gentiles a short time later because he's afraid of what the Jews would think, and Paul rebukes him. And then it's Peter who, having been afraid of suffering, then writes a letter to a church that was suffering and says... You all need to suffer better so that you have opportunities to explain why you suffer to other people for the sake of Christ. So you look at that character arc, and you know, we kind of think of a character arc as trending up, but Peter was all over the place because he was always learning new things. Look at Romans chapter 12. Look at the first three verses. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. So to sum it up, change the way you think. Don't be like the world. Recognize the authority that's invested in our teacher, that's invested in Christ. And don't get all puffed up about it either. Take a model from sociology to talk about change for a minute. They basically can boil down change into two different kinds of change. And we are always changing. 
Now you might make a case, the Bible is a book, the Bible never changes, so I can read it through. If I read it through enough times, I have all the knowledge that I need, right? But the problem is, is the context around us, the world around us is always changing. And as the world around us changes, so does the way we read Scripture. Now there's a couple of graduate level courses that we could you know, dive into if we wanted to talk about that more. But the world around us is always changing, and so we are constantly reading Scripture to figure out how things change. And the change comes through one of two ways. The first kind is sort of like remodeling a house. It's the idea that we're introducing a new form or a new part or something different. So if you are trying to develop a new habit, if you're going to start fasting, or if you've read Surprise the World, which you should, by the way, if you haven't, if you've read the book Surprise the World about forming habits to help us have opportunities to share our faith, you're adding something to the existing structure, and it's probably going to cause you to rearrange the furniture a little bit. We want to add a bathroom in our house. But we're going to have to move some things around and shuffle things around, and then everything's going to be so much better. But it's a lot of work in the meantime. That's the slow kind of change that leads to transformation. There's a second kind of change, and it's much more violent. It's like the wrecking ball. Sometimes we encounter something that is so radically different, our mind just doesn't have the categories to incorporate that new thing. And so it forces us to demolish a lot of what's there and build something new from the rubble. Sometimes we call that deconstruction. I see this a lot in the young people that would come to visit us in Angola. For the first time, they're in the developing world, and they go back home and they don't even know what to do with themselves anymore because they've been exposed to something that's so radically different. And I would suggest that this is the kind of change that we should experience the first time we encounter the church. The church is such a radically different community that lives by radically different values that by choosing to be a part of it, we have to restructure everything in our reality. You know, the world outside of this body of people lives by the principle of democracy Everyone should have a voice so that everyone can fight for their own rights. And we call it injustice when somebody doesn't have a voice for themselves that's equal to everyone else's. The church is exactly the inverse of that. The church is the community where everybody has a voice and everybody's fighting for the rights of everybody else. So being a part of this community radically reshapes the way we think of the world because now instead of fighting for what I need, we're fighting for what everybody else needs. Alright, I'm cramming a lot into one message because we don't get to do this very often, right? Alright, so, three tools that God can use, or that God does use, to change us. The first, revelation. God gives us a story. God gives us scripture. And through that story, we begin to reinterpret who we are. And it leads to change. Second is reflection. God gives us the opportunity to pause and reflect and process and take new information in so that we uh, can consider what it is that God is teaching us. What is it that God is teaching us? And then the third is relationship. God uses everyone in this room to shape you. God uses your microchurch to shape you. 
God uses people to speak into our lives so that we become transformed. So the question then becomes, what is God teaching you and what is God teaching me? Three ideas for you, very simple. The first is make time for learning, whatever that looks like. Carve out space in your life to be intentional about letting God teach you new things. Second, ask questions. <laughs> Cultivate the habit of curiosity. Don't be the kind of person that has all the answers, but be the kind of person who's always asking more questions. And the third is take the posture of a lifelong learner. We're always learning new things. If you are following Jesus, if you are a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you are learning new things. Let's recommit to always being learners of new things. And let's encourage each other to that end.